Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's um, Tuesday night. And as I said before, I'm still recovering, or not quite, I'm not in the recovery state yet. But I want to do the Haftorah, the Haftorah, get out of the way, um, early in the week. I hope by tomorrow I'll be better, Yerz Hashem. Tonight and tomorrow I have Yerzai from my father, actually. I was supposed to do a him tonight, but I'm not in, a, not in shape. So hope to do it tomorrow night, when air of it. More of that later. But... Uh, the podcast today on Avtor is being sponsored by Sondhelms in Baltimore by Usher and Dina Sondhelm who undertook to do this the other day at uh, one of the Sheva Brachas that uh, being held for my kids for my son Ari and his and his new Kala uh, Lonnie, Lonnie Rosenberg and uh, this was one of those Sheva Brachas, all the family of the Kala's uh, friends and uh <laughs> Uh, sure, Sondhelm, I guess, tried to do a Don Rickles. Pretty good, all right? A Don Rickles. And uh, meanwhile, he mentioned that he's going to um, do one of the podcasts, and he did. So without any further ado, we're looking at the Haftorah of Aira, which is one of four or five I don't know, um, prophecies in smack in the middle of the book of Ezekiel, of Yechezkel, about Egypt. Basically, damn Egypt. But it's very interesting because the partial course is about the Jews in Egypt, the Jews suffering during this week in the slavery of Egypt, obviously. So you want to have something with the Haftorah that will mention Egypt. There's plenty in Yeshayo and Yermio also. It's interesting that they picked this particular one. Um, but um, I'll tell you something interesting. For whatever reason, the Jewish people, it's part of their destiny there's some kind of a shyness with Egypt. I mean, again and again. So, it's not true that when the Jews left Egypt, that was the end of the Jewish association with Egypt. Even though the Torah says, oh, don't go back to Egypt. But they did, for a whole bunch of reasons. And frankly, Egypt was one of the few countries which until the previous century always had a Jewish community that more or less did okay. You know, every once in a while you had some ruler, uh, some king or something like that, a governor who was a nut and tried to hurt them. But Derek Klal, the Jews were very important and positive role in the economy of Egypt. Egypt has always been a very rich country in the old days, long ago. Not today. In the old days, because all the grain, everything they exported. And as I've said on earlier occasions, if you read the, um, uh, I'll give you something from the read. If you read the Igros, the letters of the Bartonura, which are the letters that he wrote, the travel log, when he made Aliyah in the 14, late 1400s. So he passed through Egypt. And he describes the tremendous prosperity and, you know, the money, the government's making money hand over fist from the imports and the exports and the Nile River and the Mediterranean Sea and all the rest of it. 
And for that reason, there have always been Jews in Egypt because of the economy. And uh, there's been this closed association. There are a fair number of, uh, as you know, there are a fair number of Gedolim um, in Egypt. Although I really have to qualify that. It's kind of interesting because if you look at the Middle Ages, the period of the Rishonim, offhand, I cannot think of a famous Rishon from Egypt. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> right? In other words, somebody born and raised in Egypt. Now, Sadegon was born in Egypt, but from a Babylonian family. And so it's like, a, for example, a guy from Lakewood moving to some Kolo situation in the Midwest. You wouldn't call that guy, if he grows up and becomes a big Talmud Chacham, going back to Lakewood, you wouldn't say, well, it goes to show you that even in, uh, you know, Iowa or uh, Jefferson City, you could produce Gedolim. You'd say he was an exception because he came from such a family of Torah scholarship, which they cultivated when he was young, even though he wasn't in the center of, of rabbinical scholarship, he was rather in Egypt. So Sadigon, we would not call a, an Egyptian Godol. And the Rambam doesn't count because the Rambam ended up in Egypt after wandering all over the place. The Rambam, as he himself always said all the time, was a Spaniard. The Sephardim, of course, definitely had a whole galaxy of Gedolim, as we know, of Rishonim. As I'm sitting over here, I can't think of anybody who uh, was a Godol in Egypt. So you always had from Jews there, and Basins, and, and even some kind of Yeshivas or whatever. But it always seems to be, at least it strikes me, as kind of a center of uh, power of uh, media, uh, not mediocre, but uh, uh, you know, power of that is to say, uh, you know, average. Okay. What's interesting is that after 1492, um, the Sephardim moved to Egypt among other places, and then you have really a galaxy of Egyptian gedolim. Uh, there's Sephardi, starting from the Radbaz, but plenty of others after him. Uh, and then, of course, by the time you get to the 20th century, Egypt went back into Parv and, uh, you know, average, even mediocre. But there have always been Jews there, okay? Um, and, they, and they've always had the problems that Jewish communities have, especially with the richy riches. If you want to have a little bit of idea, you, the average listener to this podcast, get the art scroll of Avad Yosef biography, because Avad Yosef was there for a couple of years in the 40s. And the stars he had from the Richie Riches in uh, Egypt back in those days. So it's just interesting that the Jewish people in Egypt have always had some kind of a connection. I'll tell you something else that's even more interesting. I think I'm right about this. I'm just standing here thinking. Throughout the entire period of the Nevi'im, known as Yeshua, Shoptim, Shmuel, Mlochim, you know, and all that, Dereyomim, I don't think there was a war between Israel and Egypt. There were plenty of wars. Edom, Ammon, Moab, Aram, my goodness, Aram, Ashur, Babel, kind of like you name it, and they had fights with them. Serious fights. But can you think of a war between, a war between Israel and Egypt? No. So you might say that's a good sign. Uh, Egypt had, didn't have any ambitions to conquer and rule Eretz Israel. And not to push it. And this is something the Nabi goes into in our Haptorah. Egypt didn't rule uh, uh, Israel directly, but they ruled them kind of indirectly and they played them. Okay? And the Jews were very much dupes. 
and dummies when it comes to uh, foreign policy, national security policy. And I've said this many times. And in the entire biblical era, there's like a running contest or a fight between two teams, A and B, one of which was that of the Nevi'im, who said, don't get involved with Egypt, don't get involved in Middle Eastern politics. Certainly in terms of the superpowers, Israel should not side, to use modern language, between America and Russia. Yeah. I mean, Bibi knows this. You can't antagonize Russia, that's all. Yeah. Even though the Russians are terrible, you, you know, you got to do your best to try to get along with them. Or China or something like that. And therefore, the message of the prophets, Yeshai, Yermi, Echeskel, Treyoser, all those guys were that Israel should not look, Eretz Israel should not look to international fame and, and, and politics and wars and conquests and glory to build themselves up. We define success more internally. This is actually a very, very modern concept because today, take the U.S., for example, or England or France or Germany, would they like to conquer Africa? No, right? Would they like to conquer South America? If anything, the South Americans are conquering us. They don't want them. What they want is to have peaceful relations with other people and so build up your economy that the broad public is doing okay. In other words, you don't look for glory and conquest. You look for prosperity. It's a modern way of looking at things. And this was the message of the prophets long ago, except that they put a, a, a heavy emphasis, not surprisingly, on from type. In other words, it's not only that Israel should be peaceful and prosperous, but they shouldn't worship idols, they should act properly in Beis HaMikdash, they should serve Hashem, and, you know, take care of the obligations towards the Beis HaMikdash, etc., etc. And, of course, you know, stay away from Gila Rashbik and Dhamma as we say. But Egypt, because of its uh, geographical location, always perceived that Eretz Yisrael is like the buffer state ahead of them. I think everybody here knows the map. So let's say, for example, your bubble, which is Iraq, or Asher, which is bubble southern Iraq, Asher is northern Iraq, or Aram, which is Syria, for example. If you want to attack Egypt, we got to go through Israel, agree? Whether we like it or not, Eretz Yisrael was the uh, highway between the two sets of warring combatants. Everybody's aware of the story that Yoshiahom el Kehuda got killed because he tried to block Paro, the Kho, advancing to fight a war against Babel. It's the first Kino you say on Tisha B'av. It's a famous story in the Tanakh. Remember he said, I went to Kerbal, and so on and so forth. But really, um, Yeshio, who got killed trying to do that, was very foolish. And the Chazal, you say that, he should have listened to Yirmiyahu, and this, these words are actually in the Kino, who told him to stay out of this fight. So if there's a war going on between Russia and Ukraine, even though Israel is being pushed by both sides to support them, I would say overall, Bibi and the guy before him, Bennett, have tried their best not to come down on one side or the other. Doesn't mean that they don't have their own opinion about whether it's a good idea to beat up Ukraine, but they say, you know, just like the Ukraine puts its interests first and conducts a foreign policy to, to push those interests, 
and we'll use whatever kind of uh, theoretical language, idealistic language, to support what at the end of the day is, an, is a cold national interest. So similarly, similarly, um, Eretz Yisrael should, I mean, let's put it this way, Bavel, Ashur, Mitzrayim, Aram, all these big countries pushed other countries to support them only for selfish reasons. The problem is the Jews are so dumb that they were very gullible. This is a big theme through Yeshayahu, Yermiah, Yechaskel. And they often fell for it. Even though it should be like a peanut, you know, she keeps kicking the football, whoever it is, and you see each time it doesn't, it doesn't happen. But they never learn. And so the result is that the Egyptians long ago were good diplomats. They knew how to kiss up to the other side and flatter them and therefore play them. And the Jews were always successfully played. And the problem is that Eretz Yisrael got destroyed and Egypt didn't, or it sort of didn't. That's what the Haftarah today is about. Although it has two sides to it which are fascinating. The very plain Pusher side says that um, you know, it's, it's the end of, of 28 and, begin, and the whole chapter 29. There was a time of Tishabab when um, when the base of English was destroyed, maybe a little earlier, it's, you know, different Mepharshim say different things, it's not clear. But the 10th year, Pashim Shah will be the 10th year of Tzikiyahu. And during that time, Yehuda, there was no king of Israel. The king of Israel already wiped out. So the king of Yehuda was uh, in war against Nebuchadnezzar, which was stupid because um, Nebuchadnezzar was a superpower and the king of Yehuda is tiny. So why did they go into war against them? The Egyptians played them. You understand? Egyptian diplomats' promises of support, things like that, were enough to... You bribe certain influential Jewish ministers of the government, things like that. And they got Israel to declare war on, um, on Bavel, which, which the prophet Jeremiah always said like this, you cannot run with their dogs, how are you going to run with their horses? You know, Um... And the end is we got Tishua, everything got destroyed and wiped out, and Egypt did not. Sort of did not. So, in our Parsha, it says that, um, I want you to prophesy about Egypt and predict, and, and, and predict their doom. But talks double language, like a double doom. Okay? Go prophesy about him and about Mitzrayim. And I consider you like a big crocodile. What's going to happen is somebody's going to take hooks and pull the crocodile away from its natural habitat and drop it in the middle of the Sahara Desert, in which case the crocodile would be helpless. So that's, uh, that's a heck of a way to go. It's one thing if you're average Joe crocodile and you move around in the river and you kill your share of kill and you get killed, your share of getting killed. And that's what we call ecology. But you take a crocodile today. Suppose somebody listening to this is a sick dog. Could be. I could have sick dogs listening to this. And he said, this sounds like fun. And so go catch yourself kind of crocodile. And I'll drop him off in the middle of a desert somewhere. And the crocodile is really screwed because what are you going to do? And he'll die from lack of water. I don't know what happened, but it won't be good. That's exactly the language 
that the Navi says over here, but it's not the Chachim Bilchoyecho, Hidbati Daski Orecho, Bekaskisosecho, I'll take you by hooks and chains, you won't be able to stop it, and I'll drop you in the middle of the desert. Right? And so the result is, Lachai's hearts, you'll be eaten by the buzzards and by the animals, because you'll die in the desert. It's not your natural habitat. Okay? Why? Because you always played the Jewish people, and therefore you were always the nemesis of all the Nevi'im, including me, myself, and I, says the prophet Yechezkel. So in other words, what should be the foreign policy of the king of Yehuda, and before that the king of Israel? Well, you have a Navi, that itself should tell you a lot. And the Navi says, pursue a policy of peace, but then you also had the other way around. Those who said, no, no, don't listen to the Navi, now's an opportunity, you know, you can kick out the guy from this area, take it over, annex it to Yehuda, make it bigger. And your Meshed is a weak read. Which Rashi says, The Jews often, stupidly, relied on promises of help from Egypt in wartime. And, and help never materialized. So basically, they say, you go start the war, we'll help you. But they didn't. Okay? And the idea of the Egyptian policy was, uh, excuse me, let the enemy armies expend their, their, their might and power and money conquering Yehuda and Yushalayim and Eretz Yisrael, and then they'll be much weaker when it comes to face Egypt directly. Maybe they won't do so. Now, in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, he actually later invaded Egypt. And that's prophesied in this parsha. But there's also, but there were Mishenes Kaneh, a weak read. They promised help, you could, like you could lean on a read, but really... Um, uh, um, uh, whatever lotion is over there. If you lean in a weak read, it'll break and it'll cut through your hand. So it's like a very good muscle. Instead of being somebody you can rely on, it's the reverse. So it's warning you against ever getting involved or trusting Egypt. You cannot trust Egypt. This is true today in the year 2024. Israel's had a peace treaty with Egypt since 1979, but the Egyptians every second have been looking for a chance to screw Israel if they can. The only thing is, the Rabbanu Shalom has run the world in such a way, as part of the divine chess plan, as I always say, that the governmental situation in Egypt has ironically been one that's uh, objectively friendly towards the state of Israel's existence. Israel went to war in 1948. That was at the time when Egypt was ruled by King Farouk, who was very corrupt, and therefore, since he was so corrupt, the army didn't fight well. And the Jews were, they didn't fight so bad either, but they didn't fight well. As a result, the Jews were able to conquer what we call southern Israel. Unfortunately, the Americans would not let them conquer the Gaza Strip. That's why we have trouble on a Yom uh, Within four years, a military dictatorship took over under the Gimad Nasser, and they've been there since ever since. So today, uh, the government in Egypt is a direct descendant of the original coup, which took place in 1952. First you had Nasser, then you had Sadat, then you had Mubarak, and then you got this guy, Sissy. And uh, it's not a real election. It's a dictatorship. Now, why is being a dictatorship, why is that good for Israel? Well, you see, 
The government is not popular over there, and Egypt is a pretty from country, Islamically religious country. There's always been a big movement called the Muslim Brotherhood, and they're pretty religiously fanatical. And they've been claiming ever since the, the King Farouk that they should be the rulers of the country. If they took over, it would be all convey for Israel because they were going you know, to have wars and things like this because of religious reasons. Uh, but before they did that, they would kill out all the army guys and the Nasser and the Mubarak and the Sadan and the Sisi type guys. And they're not dumb enough not to know it. And consequently, Egypt has had a suppression policy ever since Nasser, sometimes more, sometimes less, to suppress the Muslim Brotherhood, kill a lot of these guys. Uh, and if you say boo-hoo, they'll kill you. And uh, the result was that, uh, let's put it this way, the state of Israel is not a threat to the regime. As a matter of fact, the opposite. The state of Israel agrees with the regime that the state of Israel is not with the Muslim Brotherhood to take over. And so they share intelligence. And they're behind the scenes. Everything is done behind the scenes. And uh, they share other things. And they consult with each other. If you noticed, if Egypt wanted to, they could help the uh, Gaza, the Hamas, a lot more than they have. And the Arabs know this. So it's funny how this works out. Because you see, the regime in Egypt, they can't say so openly, they don't want Hamas to emerge triumphant because the Hamas is a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. That will be Mechazek, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, and they'll overthrow the government and kill everybody. So I hope, maybe I confused you, I hope I didn't. But um, here we go back to the prophet Yechezkel, who's talking about the fact that they always use clever diplomacy to make sure Israel's rulers make the wrong choices. Instead of listening to the Nevi'im, they end up listening to the, to the Egypt. And because Israel really got hurt so much, Hashem says, I'm going to punish them. Okay? I'll take the crocodile throw it into the desert, and the famous thing, right? And so on and so forth. However, however, there's a second destruction which is described here. And what is that? Now, archaeologists, historians, I could give you a historical reason. I believe I did so last year. But um, there's a very, very interesting and remarkable on Barbanel, as there often is, on this passage. Listen to this. Because again, there are in Haftar today two predictions, A and B, of bad things going to happen in Egypt. Okay? And so, Hakavana Kolel is Benavuus Elu, the general idea behind all this stuff. They're all about Egypt, but they're talking about different tekufas. And one of the tekufas is the time of the prophet Yechezkel himself. So not too long after the destruction of the Mikdash, Nebuchadnezzar actually invaded Egypt. You may possibly remember, if you know your Tanakh a little bit, that the guys who were involved in the Son Gedalia thing, not the murderers of Gedalia, but the people who had followed him, and were now scared that Nebuchadnezzar would come and kill them all, ran away to Egypt. And I think they were killed by Nebuchadnezzar when he invaded Egypt or something like that. So there will be a, there was a, an invasion of Egypt with a lot of death and destruction happening to Egypt by on the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. On the other hand, there's a second set of prophecies, and what's that talking about? See here the Abarbanel, I don't know where he gets it from exactly, it says something quite remarkable. Listen closely. After the, destruct, uh, the description 
of round one of destruction of Egypt at the time of Nebuchadnezzar, Nibal Churban Acher. The prophet in this week's Parsha, Haftorah, prophesies about another Korban. And it'll be a worse Korban than the first one. In Mashiach's sight. So according to the Barbano, the second half of the Haftorah is talking about the time of Mashiach, where there will be an actual World War Three type situation in Egypt. Listen closely. Meaning when the Jewish people Move back to Eretz Yisrael. Now, depending on how Zionistic you are, you could say that you and I are living in a time of Kibbutz Kolius, simply because we've reached a point today, which has never existed, that um, that Israel has the largest Jewish community, even bigger than America. Hasn't been like that ever, but it's like that today. Now, I don't say Rove of Klal Yisrael lives in uh, Israel. But if if, if if the way things are going, it's it's moving that direction. Because truth of the matter is, there are only 13, 14 million Jews in the world. Don't believe the bigger numbers. They're all lies. There are about 13, 14 million Jews in the world. Which is pretty sad, because in 1939, before Hitler started the Holocaust, there were 16 and a half million. Those are the most accurate figures that I know of. So we haven't replaced what we lost, you know, in Hitler's time. And even though it's almost 100 years later... But anyway, um, since the time of Kibbutz Goliath, when the Jews returned to Eretz Yisrael in big numbers, so what will happen then? The Christians, the Bnei Edom, will march on a con- camp like another crusade to conquer Eretz Yisrael by Yaakov and and they will invade Egypt along the, on the way. And basically kill everybody out with no survivors. That's what the Brahminal sees. And for some reason, um, there'll be a, a multi-ethnic army, including Ashur and Elam, Basharumas, until be a massive war. and be endless uh, uh, corpses and casualties. And that will be the payback to Mitzrayim for messing over Israel, for screwing over Israel all the time. The place that they did bad to Kali Yisrael, meaning Egypt and his councils, that's where they'll get all their Mishpat. In other words, Egypt is looking at some kind of a future which is pretty violent. Now, speaking historically, it's very interesting that Bible is writing this around the year 1500, a little bit later. And around the year 1500. And the Crusades took place earlier. But indeed, the Crusades, a number of times, did exactly what he said. When they wanted to conquer the Holy Land, some of them went through what you and I call Turkey and Syria today. I think that was the first Crusade. But others tried to go through Egypt. The famous Louis, uh, Louis IX, St. Louis, who was a mom's and a half, a big anti-Semite. He died in, in, in the bad fever when he invaded and conquered Egypt on the way to conquering Eretz Yisrael. That was his goal as a Catholic monarch. So um, that might be influencing the Barbadell. Plus, in his time, the Barbadell's time, Spain was on a campaign to conquer all of North Africa, and they were making progress in that direction. Now, you know, and I know today it never happened. 
But they didn't do it at that time. And anyway, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Barbara knows something we don't know. But he's saying that when you read the second half of the Haftorah, you're looking at a certain scenario in which there'll be another crusade. Or so he said, but hey, notes him, the Christians, be some kind of crusade against uh, the other side. Will this be a reaction to the Muslim uh, penetration of Europe? I don't know. But it's fascinating that the Barbara will have this insight and so when you take a look at it, this week's parsha, especially, it's going to be a mamlacha shafala, and uh, I mean, that's certainly the case today. Asia today is an economic basket case without constant support from America and the other countries that couldn't survive. And, and, um, Egypt lives in constant fear existentially because they only get their water from the Nile River and nothing else. And the Nile River could be cut off and it's, origins and its source, which is closer to Ethiopia and Kenya, and those African countries are saying we want more than, more than Nile water, which is a real death threat to Egypt because the whole population of Egypt will die from thirst, and there's no attempt in Egypt to have a birth control, and so the population is now to Egypt, I think, 120 million or something like that, some crazy number, it's only going to get bigger, and there's not enough water, my friends, there is just not enough water. So what happens, like Malthusian, you know, Thomas Malthus, what happens when your population exceeds the ability to feed itself? Are we going to look at a mamlocha shvela? Are we going to look at uh, the kind of descriptions that we have in this week's parsha? Egypt looks powerful, and it is in its way, but on the other hand, maybe it's being set up for some kind of big zach with the cutoff of the water. Uh, now that I told you this, take the trouble to go online, and, you know, Google, you know, Nile River in Egypt and Africa and all this stuff. And Egyptians are plenty scared. I don't blame them. So, uh, you see the divine chess plan. That, you know, they messed this up. Give it a couple thousand years and then we'll mess them up. Uh, that itself is a very, very interesting kind of concept. It's absolutely typical of the Nevi'im and of the Haftarah. And it takes the story of this week's uh, Torah leading, which is Egypt and the Jews, in the time of uh, the plagues, and it carries the story forward thousands of years to Akhres Um I think that's a very unusual, interesting take that the Abarbanel has. And uh, the very name it's rhyme is, is suggestive. And it's something you can look into. It's uh, You have to know a little bit of history, though. And that's already an intelligent conversation with Shabbos. Anyway, that's what I want to say in the Torah. I want to get a thank the Santels. For coming through, as we said, and they sponsored this Aptor podcast, Usher and Dina, and I thank them. And with that, I wish everybody a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.